The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Good morning, church. How are we? I love that. Come on. We need some more of that in our lives. How are the rest of you? Here we are. All right. Hey, uh, if you're new, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Missio Day, and I uh, have the great, great honor of preaching the Word of God this morning. Uh, if you are new around here and want to be known, there's a gray and blue card in the seat back in front of you. That's called a Connect card. Uh, if you fill that out at any point during the gathering, uh, we're going to give $5 to um, the Haywood County Flood Relief. And so I uh, would love to uh, have you at least make yourself known. If there's a way we can pray for you, the back of that card is for prayer requests. Um, and so you can just put those in the black boxes uh, that say giving on your way out. If you're a guest, your giving can be your Connect card, and we will give on your behalf to uh, Haywood County Flood Relief. So um, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please open it to Acts chapter 9. Robbie, can you hit those lights for me so I can see these beautiful people, or at least their eyeballs? All right. Uh, I was not here last week. I was in Cincinnati uh, preaching for Missio Day Church Cincinnati's 10th anniversary. That was the first church plant that we sent out from here. Uh, Kurt, our founding pastor, uh, we sent him out in 2010. They launched Missio uh, Cincinnati in 2011. And so uh, it was fun to be able to be there and, and preach for their 10th anniversary on our 14th. And uh, I hope Zach blessed you guys. Did you enjoy having Zach here from the Grove Spruce Pine? Yeah. You can clap for him. He's not here, but you can clap for him nonetheless. Um, one of our more recent uh, church plants there in uh, Spruce Pine. So uh, I'm glad that was a blessing to you, you all. We're in the book of Acts. We're back into it this morning. And um, if you have been with us, you've heard me say ad nauseum that Acts is all about what it's like when the power of God is unleashed through his people, the church. And that's really what the book of Acts is all about. And just to give you a summary, because I know we got a lot of new people lately, and not everyone's been with us for the entire series, I'll try to summarize very briefly these first uh, eight or nine chapters here. Chapter one, Christ has died and is risen, and he tells his disciples to wait. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to come upon them, and that when the Holy Spirit comes, they will be empowered to be his witnesses uh, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In chapters two and three, the Holy Spirit comes empowers, emboldens the disciples. Peter gets up, he preaches the first sermon. Thousands of Jews are saved there in Jerusalem and the New Testament church is birthed. Chapter four, we start to see the disciples preach and heal. They're on mission, proclaiming Jesus, healing diseases, casting out demons, all this crazy cool stuff that happens. The religious leaders, they're not really happy about this. So they arrest Peter, they arrest John, they tell them, hey, cut it out, knock it off. We don't want you doing this anymore. To which Peter's response is, I cannot help but talk about what I've seen and heard. And so they go back and they ask the other disciples to help them pray for more boldness. And God gives it to them. Uh, And so they continue to preach and to heal. Chapters 5 and 6, we get a little blip with Ananias and Sapphira. uh, These two people inside the church who who were sinning. And we learn from that 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 Sin affects all of us. There's no such thing as just a private individual sin, right? But it affects our entire community. Uh, But then we see 
healing and proclamation and trouble and power all sort of blended together uh, in those chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 7, we see Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith. He's a deacon in the church. Uh, He begins to proclaim the word of God to the Jewish leaders. They are furious and they murder him. And that's when we're introduced in chapter 8 to this man named Saul. We've kind of been tracking Saul's story uh, lately here. He is a Jew who hates Jesus and hates the Christian church, and he finds it his personal mission to kill the church. So the text tells us he's ravaging the church. But then we get chapter 9. And in chapter 9, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, the risen Jesus Christ confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul repents. He falls at his face before the Lord. He becomes a Christian. He surrenders his life to the lordship of Jesus. Uh, And then he is commissioned uh, to to proclaim what he has heard. And so uh, we watched Saul immediately, once he was saved, start proclaiming Jesus. What I want to kind of get our arms around today, this is, I'm just going to be up front with you. Uh, Today's passage is a little bit of a wonky passage. Not that it doesn't make sense. It's just a little all over the place because this is just an account of what happened, right? And so it's, it, hasn't, it wasn't like put together in an order that makes like the most flow, the most sense. And so we're just looking at the text as it comes to us, and today's is a little bit all over the place. And so um, hopefully my sermon won't be all over the place, uh, but it might be. It kind of was at the nine, so I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Um, but I want to get our arms around, what, what does Saul's life look like now that he's a follower of Jesus? This guy who was the, the, the fiercest persecutor of the church uh, is now going to be one of its fiercest advocates. And what does that look like for him? And then what does it look like for the church, you know, to see this guy who was their enemy now be one of them? And so that's kind of what we're going to look at here in, in uh, these, this later portion of uh, Acts chapter 9. What I'd like to do is start in verse 19, which is kind of where we left off two weeks ago, just to give us context. Primarily, we'll be in verses 23 to 31 this morning. Um, but if you will allow me, I'm going to start in verse 20, or sorry, 19, the second part of verse 19. Um, I'll read down to 31. I'll pray and then we'll jump in. Sound good? Great. All right. Follow along with me as I read. For some days, he, that's Saul or Paul, the name will be interchangeable in my sermon at least. Uh, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed... The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be um, gathered together this morning, thankful for uh, your grace in our lives, which uh, brings us from death to life, from blindness and obliviousness uh, to the reality of God, uh, into a startling, clear vision of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who we are in Christ. We thank you, those of us who have surrendered to Jesus, who know what it is to be saved. We thank you for that um, reality of new life, eternal life. And I pray that if anyone in this room has not crossed that threshold of faith, uh, that they might do so today. But Lord, as we look at this passage, uh, we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, would you fill me and empower me as I preach this word that I might rightly divide it, that I might encourage uh, your saints uh, with your word, and that we might see a little bit more clearly today uh, the beauty of our Lord Jesus. And so we ask this in his name, in his beautiful name, and everybody said, that's when, that's when you say amen. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay, so if you're a note taker, I'm going to go ahead and give you uh, a point where you can write down, and then I'll kind of explain it. It's not going to make sense right away, but uh, if you're a note taker, you can write this down for point one. Perspective in pain. Perspective in pain. Let's look at verse 23 again. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Wouldn't you love to be there and see that? <laughs> this would have been so fun. Uh, it sounds like from this passage that there, he's, Saul is just kind of hanging out with the disciples in Damascus for a few weeks, and then he's moving on. But in reality, it's more likely that, that Saul stayed for about three years. Uh, so when it says many days, that's true. <laughs> uh, it's many, many days. He was there for about three years. We know that from Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul, the Apostle Paul by this point, is giving his own account of his salvation. He's mentioning the Damascus road, and he says that he stayed in Damascus, then he went into Arabia, and then back to Damascus before he ever went to Jerusalem. So this account telling us he went to Jerusalem after many days, uh, he elaborates in Galatians 1 that he went on this journey into Arabia, back to Damascus, and then to Jerusalem. So this is about three years of time that have, that have transpired here. And we don't really know what happened in Arabia. We don't, there's no record of that. Some people speculate that it was a preaching journey. You know, he was excited about Jesus and he went and was sharing the gospel. Other people speculate that, that this was his discipleship moment. Um, that, that the disciples, the apostles, had, had spent three years with Jesus, being discipled by him before he went to the cross, and that as Paul was commissioned to be a, an apostle, this was his moment of Jesus ministering to him. We don't really know. I'd like to think, this is my little personal speculation, I'd like to think that, that Paul took with him uh, the scroll, right, a copy of the Torah, and he spent that three years just going from beginning to end, all the way back through it, and going, oh, look, there's Jesus. I never saw that before. Oh, look, there's the gospel, right? And he was sort of being retrained in seeing Jesus in all the scripture, which is evident to those of us who are believers, right? You can't help but see Jesus in the scriptures. And so maybe that's what he was doing. But we do know this. To the Jews, 
Saul became a problem, <laughs> okay? They despised him, and they, could, they were furious that a man of his reputation, a man of his education, a, a man of his standing in the Jewish community would flip and would become an advocate for Jesus. They considered him a heretic. Here's this guy who's peddling all kinds of blasphemies against the God of the Old Testament, and we have to put a stop to it. So they, they were setting out to do whatever they had to do in order to stop what they considered to be a threat. So they conspired to kill him. Now, somehow he finds out. We don't know. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit sort of whispering to him in his dreams. Maybe loose lips sink ships, right? And also plans to kill apostles. So maybe he found out, right, because there was a rumor spreading about how they were going to kill him. Regardless, he, he finds out about it. And what's interesting is, look here at verse 25. This is kind of a side note, but I think it's important. It says in verse 25 that his disciples, that is Saul's disciples, took him by night and led him down through the uh, basket, sort of this Rahab-like incident, right? If you remember the spies in the book of Joshua. Saul, by this point, he's only three years into his discipleship journey as a follower of Jesus, and yet the text is telling us that he has his own disciples. So Saul has grown enough to take other younger believers under his wing and to help them learn to follow Jesus as well. I think that's a really important reminder for all of us that we have a responsibility as, as Christ followers both to be discipled and to disciple others. Unfortunately, in my many years of ministry, I have seen many believers who have walked with Jesus for a long time continue to come to the church with their hand out and say, what are you doing for me? Where are the programs? Where are the ministries? Where are the Bible studies? Where are the, you know, disciple me, disciple me, disciple me, disciple me. And I go, hey, you know, a great way to dis be discipled is to start discipling others. And they're like, well, I don't have time for that. Well, let's be real, okay? But what are you going to do for me? And it just, it just shows you the immaturity sometimes of, of believers that we're, we're requiring that the church do something for us, but we're not willing to do what Jesus tells us to do, which is to make disciples. So just a little encouragement there, right? If you are being fed, if you are being poured into by someone or by a group, also who are you pouring into? Because this discipleship thing is not meant to terminate on us, but to flow through us to the next generation. Amen? Okay. So they lower him in a basket like Rahab did with the spies. Off to Jerusalem he goes. And here's really where the, the pain starts to happen, okay? This is why I titled this point, Perspective in Pain. This is the beginning of a very, very hard life for Saul. Very difficult life. Uh, Jesus had promised, remember when, when Ananias got the vision that he was supposed to go to Saul, lay hands on him and pray for him that he might receive his sight again? And, and Jesus says to Ananias, I, I will tell him, I will tell Paul, Saul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And he did. Um, everywhere Saul goes, there's pain, there's hardship, there's difficult circumstances, there's new problems. Uh, in fact, let me just read you a, a section of uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. So uh, Paul later writes this letter to the church at Corinth, and he speaks a lot about trials and hardship. And here's what he has to say. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 23. It won't be on the screen, so you can just listen along. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the, of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That means they threw rocks at him. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. By the way, I think it was after the third shipwreck, um, he ends up on this island and he goes to build a fire, picks up wood, and he gets bit by a viper. Okay, so it's like at some point you're like, Lord, you know? <laughs> three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Listen to this in danger from rivers. Some of you know all about that. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. So he's in danger from Jews and Gentiles. That's pretty much everybody. (laughs) Okay? Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. In toil. It doesn't say that. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger and in thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And... Apart from other things, it's like there's more, but you don't have time. Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Brother lived a hard life, okay? And yet, in this same letter, 2 Corinthians, a little earlier, he also says that all of this pain that he's dealing with, he says, we do not lose heart because this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And you think to yourself, how in the world is that possible? How can this brother who's been beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and adrift at sea and all this stuff go, hey, you know what? All that affliction and it's real affliction, it's real pain, it's real hardship, it's light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. How is that possible? Because Saul had perspective. He had a way of seeing things that allowed his soul to flourish even in the midst of pain and hardship and suffering. And he tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that it's because he's focused not on what's seen, but what is unseen that gives him that perspective. He's not focusing on what's seen, but what's unseen. And that is the key to helping him put things in perspective. Um, Here's the reality for all of us. How many of you have problems in your life? <laughs> okay, so those, and then, so there's those who raise their hands and liars. <laughs> we all have problems, right? Some of us more severe problems than others. Some of us more personal problems, than others, but we all have problems. And when our problems become the focus of our attention, right? When we focus solely on our problems, our problems and our pain and our suffering become really, really big, and our God becomes really, really small. It's similar to, so, so what we need is to get above, like we, gotta, we have to refocus our attention to put our problems in the proper proportion to who God is. Does it make sense? So like this morning when I was driving in, there was a, a pretty good amount of fog on the interstate, um, and it just made me think of times when I've driven on, like, on the parkway on steep, winding mountain roads through really dense fog, or if you've ever been hiking, uh, and it's just like my grandpa used to call it pea soup fog, right? Just so thick, you can't see anything except the hand in front of your face. And often, when we face trials and circumstances and, and all kinds of difficulty, it's like fog rolls in on us, okay? And so all we can see is like what's right in front of us. And it consumes all our focus and all our attention and everything, uh, all our energy. 
And what we need is to be able to get above the clouds, get out of that fog so that we can see the bigger perspective. Because just because the fog rolled in doesn't mean that the only thing that, that our hand is all there is, right? There's a world out there. We just can't see it. And so what Paul is saying here is by focusing on Jesus, like that old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That when we focus our hearts and our minds and our attention on Jesus, God becomes really big and our problems don't go away, but they become put into better perspective. They they begin to be more proportional. Does that make sense? And what what we see when we focus on Jesus is that he also suffered. First Peter says that he also suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the righteous Jesus for us, the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. We, we understand that Jesus suffered not so that we would avoid suffering and pain, but so that in our suffering and pain we'd be made more like Jesus. And we still have problems. And sometimes our problems get worse when we focus on Jesus. Okay? Um, but they start to shrink into the proper proportion. We see God as big and our problems as, Paul says, light and momentary in comparison, okay? The weightier things get lighter and and our soul is able to actually thrive even in the midst of pain. That's that's perspective in pain. That's what is beginning here in Acts chapter 9 for Saul, who would become the apostle Paul. So I just wonder this morning, like, for those of us who are experiencing pain, right? Some of us, maybe it's, um, it's physical pain from sickness or, or just injury um, or oldness, right? We're all wasting away. Um, f- for some of us, it's, it's emotional pain, uh, a broken relationship, isolation, depression, anxiety, loneliness. For some of us, it's, uh, it's financial pain, right? Like the old country song, there's too much month at the end of the money. Um, there's, there's all kinds of pain. But is your pain proportional to your God? Is your pain in the right perspective uh, in comparison to your God and this eternal weight of glory that will be ours one day? This, this world is fading away, and one day we will be, we will be with our Savior forever in everything Everything we go through in this life, uh, as one scholar once said, um, everything, every pain in this life will one day feel like a, one bad night stay at a bad motel. You know? So, you guys hanging in? All right. Let's look at the, my next point, which is courage in community. I hope these points are helpful. It's not natural to me to write these out, but I feel like I've got to give you some headings. So... Some of you are like, man, I don't like this. I don't either, but I think it helps some of you. I'd rather just preach it. Anyway, okay, Uh, look at verse 26 with me. And when he had come to Jerusalem, so he's escaped Damascus and the, the threat there, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. No, duh. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. 
See, he's in danger, danger everywhere. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. Courage in community. Um, Saul returns to Jerusalem after three long years, and he can't go back to his friends, who he knew then, because they they're Jews, and they don't believe in Jesus, and he does now, so he's an enemy. And I just find this so striking. You know, he left Jerusalem to go catch Christians. That was his, his deal, right? His mission was to go arrest Christians and bring them back. And now he returns to Jerusalem, not with Christians, but as one. <laughs> and he comes back, and what does he do? Immediately he goes to the church, right? I'm going to go there. But it's, let's just say awkward, okay? Uh, they're scared of him, which is understandable, because here are the words that have described Saul's relationship to the church up till now. He's ravaging the church. He's breathing threats and murder against the church. Later in Acts, we hear him say from his own mouth that he was in a raging fury against Christians. And so put yourself in the shoes of, of one of these believers in Jerusalem. You're going, okay, wait a minute. You are the one who's responsible for our friends being imprisoned and murdered and scattering outside of Jerusalem, and now you want to join us? I don't think so, bub. Okay, maybe he's playing the long game. Like, there's some skepticism here. Maybe he's pretending to be a believer so he can infiltrate the church at Jerusalem, and then he's going to come after us. Like, they don't know. They don't know. So they're skeptical. And what it takes is Barnabas. We were introduced to Barnabas in chapter 4. His name means son of encouragement. Later in Acts, we learn that he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And Barnabas, for, we don't know how he met Saul. We don't know the nature of their relationship other than that later they become really good friends and co-laborers in ministry. But somehow he knew Saul's story. Somehow he believed Saul's story. And so he takes it upon himself to go to the apostles and to be Saul's sponsor, his advocate. And he says, guys, trust me, okay? He met Jesus, He saw him appear to him. He heard him speak to him. He was commissioned by him. He preached about Jesus. Like, you have to be changed. If you're a guy whose number one mission in life is kill Christians, and then you're preaching the gospel of Jesus, something happened to you. And so this is what what Barnabas is doing for him. He's going, hey, he belongs, okay? I'm advocating for him. He's putting his own reputation on the line in order to advocate for his new friend Saul just like Ananias did a couple chapters ago. And on this endorsement, Saul is then welcomed into the Christian community in Jerusalem. Um, Even if maybe a little nervously, (laughs) they welcome him in. Um, And this this made me realize, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, we've seen a lot of new people coming to Missio Day lately. Uh, Many of you are new in the last, let's say, six to eight weeks or more. And we're so thankful uh, that the Lord would continue to, to bring people in these doors and that, that you would find a home here. Um, and and it's, my, it's my understanding that when people walk through the doors of any church for the first time, one of the primary things that all of us are looking for when we come into the doors of a church is to belong. We want belonging. Because out there... You have to measure up in order to belong. Out there, in in the world we live in, you have to be good enough to to be accepted. You have to be smart enough to belong. You have to be cool enough to belong. Easy for me, but it's a struggle for the rest of you. You have to be be pretty enough to belong. You, You have to have enough 
resources or enough education to belong out there. There there are all kinds of measurements that everyone's kind of sizing you up and going, do you have what it takes to belong to my group? But when you come through these doors, you already belong. Because all of us who come through the doors are people who don't measure up. None of us measure up to the righteous requirements of God's law. None of us measure up to the standard of perfection. When God says, be holy as I am holy, he's speaking to us and we can't do it. So we come through these doors as broken people who do not measure up, pleading with God for the mercy that he extends to us. And we cling to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. And that's all we have to do. And some of you have not crossed that threshold of faith yet, and that's okay. I'm glad you're here, and I hope that what you'll find in this room among these people is people who are striving to love Jesus and to cling to him, who stumble and trip and fall and do all kinds of stupid things, but get back up and go back to Jesus again and again and again, and his mercy is more for us. And, And that though we fail God and each other, This is a place of healing and forgiveness and grace and mercy, and you can belong to that. So I want to say to those of you who are what you might call a regular around here, okay? And I don't care if you are a regular for 10 years or three weeks. May we be a community of Barnabases, Barnabai, all right? (laughs) Who will be on the lookout? And it is super challenging with masks on. You're like, I think I saw those eyes last week, but I don't really remember. Um, may we be a people who have eyes to see who in our, in, in our row, uh, who walking down the hall, who walking outside might be new and looking to belong. And may we extend that encouragement to them and that sense of belonging to them so that they can experience what we have experienced in this community. Amen? What impact does this belonging have on Saul? What we see here in the text is that he goes in and out. Now that he knows he belongs, now that he knows he's free, now that he knows he's accepted by this community, he goes in and out preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He's using the gift God has given him with confidence because he knows he belongs. And that's my hope for each one of you, that when we know we belong to Jesus and to this community, it will empower us to use the gifts that God has given us to serve Christ and one another and our city for the glory of God. Now, that doesn't mean Saul's trouble-free. As we see in the text there, uh, the Hellenists, which are the Greek-speaking Jews, they're what you might call peeved, uh, and, and they're arguing with Saul, and he's shutting them down because he's got, he's got pretty good skills in handling the Bible, uh, and so they want to kill him now. And so his friends, the the brothers there in Jerusalem, they help him escape. He goes to Caesarea, which is probably where Philip is by this time. If you remember from chapter 8, Philip met that guy on the the road, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he went and ended up in Caesarea. So he probably goes and spends some time with Philip, and then they send him home to Tarsus, which is where Saul's from. Uh, It's a port city. And we don't hear again from Saul until chapter 11 almost all the way through, the, through chapter 11. So there's a period of years that goes by now, and Saul's just home in Tarsus as a believer. We don't know what he's up to, but he's not being used yet. He's being prepared. And we'll see when we get to chapter 13, Paul being commissioned uh, on, on some journeys, some missionary journeys. <clears throat> so what happened to the church during this time? 
Let's look at verse 31. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the book of Acts and uh, maybe the Bible. Uh, in, in our mission statement as a church, maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God, partly comes from Matthew 28 because Jesus said, go make disciples. But it partly comes from this verse as well. And, and we'll see that as we look at it. Look at verse 31 with me. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So I'll, I'll call this point progress in peace. Progress in peace. For the first time since the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2, the church of Jesus is now experiencing some peace and some stability. Acts 1.8 is coming to fruition. Jesus commissioned his disciples, right? And he said, you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're seeing that. The church, the people of God who've been established, the church in Judea, Galilee, Samaria, has peace and is being built up, meaning they're, they're, they're maturing. Bless you. They're maturing. They're growing. Uh, Colossians 2, you know, t- talks about being built up, rooted, and built up in the faith. This is what's happening. These people are growing deeper and stronger and closer to Jesus. They're maturing in their faith. Why? Because there's a season of peace. Why is there a season of peace? Because the greatest persecutor against the church is now a believer, And he's not after them anymore. They don't have to look over their shoulder to know whether someone's going to try to arrest them or murder them for believing in Jesus. Um, It's not just also that there's an, an absence of conflict, right? That's one sense of peace. But also the church had experienced firsthand the promises that the Prince of Peace was actually with them. And through all their pain and turmoil and trial, he had sustained them. He had been with them. And they had experienced his peace uh, in the midst of that season. We need to be aware of whatever season we're in uh, as a church. And uh, I I think if I had to put a finger on it, I'd say that largely our church is experiencing health uh, and and vitality. uh, And I'm thankful for that. At the same time, there are individuals scattered throughout this church, and it's, it's really happened as we started the book of Acts. Um, there's a lot of pain. Uh, there's a lot, there's, there are marriages on the rocks. Uh, there are people experiencing extreme depression, anxiety. Uh, the, the, the counseling load has gone through the roof. There, there are, people are in crisis, and there's a lot of people hurting right now. And I think we should just be aware of that as we interact with one another, that I don't know experience, right, of the person I'm talking to, and uh, to be praying for one another, to be praying uh, that God would, would minister to us and through us to bring healing and restoration uh, to individuals within our church family. But this church is experiencing a season of peace. They've seen the power of God unleashed through them, and the church is growing. And uh, it says that they're, they're, they're being built up, they're, they're maturing. And what happens as they're maturing Uh, It says this in verse 31, that they were doing two things. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, the fear of the Lord? Uh, There's there's two ways to be fearful. There's two ways to fear in someone's presence. One, as we saw with 
with Saul, right? The church was afraid of him. Why? Because they didn't trust him. They were afraid of harm because there was distrust, right? So that's one way to be afraid. But there's another way. There's another kind of fear. It's a fear of dishonoring. It's a fear of disappointing someone because you love them. And that's what fear of the Lord really is. Uh, fear of the Lord is not, not a cringing dread before God. Like if you're in Christ, that is not your experience. There's no condemnation in Christ. So to fear the Lord means that we are, we are humbling ourselves before him. We are, we are open to be instructed by him. We're asking ourselves questions like, what does God say? What, is, what does God want? Right? What would honor the Lord? And we're seeking to, to put to death uh, you know, sin that hinders our walk. We're, we're seeking to walk humbly and in, in, in holiness uh, to pursue him. And we're listening. We're open to what God would want to say to us. That's what fear of the Lord is. So this church, they're walking in the fear of the Lord. And then they're also walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, given to every believer when we surrender our lives to Jesus. Uh, the Holy Spirit is called our advocate. Uh, he's called our counselor. He's called our comforter. The Holy Spirit is how we experience the presence of God in our lives. The Holy Spirit is how God never leaves us or forsakes us, because the Spirit is always present with us. And, and one reason that God gives the Holy Spirit is to bring comfort, because there's so much in our lives that's uncomfortable, and that brings discomfort. Um, so I think of like Romans chapter 8, when, when Paul talks about how um, when, when the Spirit is in us, he helps us in our weaknesses. He's, he, he intercedes for us when we don't know what to say or what to pray. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with, with groanings too deep for words, right? You've had those moments where you're just in such pain, you don't know, like all that kind of comes out of you is noise, you know? And that's, the Holy Spirit is working through that, advocating, um, um, interceding for you, but before the Lord, before God, that's, that's incredible. The Holy Spirit also brings consolation, and comfort to us when, when this world beats the snot out of us. And 1 John 3 reminds us that the Holy Spirit is our advocate. Um, not, not that the Holy Spirit is pleading uh, with God not to judge us, but that the Holy Spirit is pleading with us to remember who we are, to remember that we belong to him, that if we're in Christ, there's no condemnation, see? That this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit reminds us of, of our identity in Christ, of the love of God, the love of God that casts out all other fears. For believers, it's the Holy Spirit who, who reminds us of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us, right? That he lived a life we couldn't, that he died the death we deserved, that he rose again, and that any who would believe in him are now forgiven of sin, but also adopted into his family and will belong forever. There's nothing we can do uh, to escape the hand of our loving Father. And so this church is humble before God, walking in fear of the Lord, open, what do you want to do, Lord? They're also walking in the comfort of God's Spirit. They're, they're, they're being reassured and comforted and consoled. And so what happens to this church when it's walking in... in uh, in the, the fear of the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 31 there. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what happened to the church? It multiplied. It didn't just grow a little bit. 
It exploded in growth. It's exponential. It multiplied. It didn't add, it multiplied. Right? As these people who now had peace because no one was after them, as they pursued humility before the Lord and received the comfort from God's Spirit, they dug deeper. They dug deeper. Uh, And as they dug deeper, the church was able to reach further. More people were being formed into the image of Christ in thought and word and in deed. More people were being built up in their faith, growing deeper in relationship with God. More people were, be, were becoming known to one another through genuine God-honoring community and relationships. More people were using their gifts and abilities to bless and serve God and to equip people. More people were sharing the tender heart of Jesus to those who are weak and vulnerable. More people We're going out with both the humility and the boldness of Jesus Christ to share the good news of the gospel. And may it be so for us as we move into year 15 that God has has been so gracious to us over these last 14. As we move into year 15, may it so be for us that we walk in the fear of the Lord together and we experience the comfort of God's spirit in our lives that we might see the church multiply throughout the entire region of Western North Carolina. Churches planted in every one of the 22 counties of the 828 for the glory of God and for the good of people who don't know him yet. Amen? All right. Listen, I don't have any questions to put up on the screen this morning. But what I do want to do is I want to give you, is this cutting in and out? It sounds like it's cutting in and out. Okay. Maybe it's just my ears. Um, I want to give you a few moments uh, just of silence. Whatever the Lord might have spoken to you through this sermon, uh, maybe it had to do uh, with, with belonging. Uh, maybe it had to do um, uh, with, with, with the Spirit's comfort. Maybe it had to do with the pain you're currently walking through and and, and how proportional it is to a sovereign, loving God. I, I don't know what, if there was one thing maybe that the, the Spirit would help you latch onto from today's message, but I want you to just sit with that and, and take it before the Lord and just ask Him to, to reveal to you things in your life that, that maybe need to change or ways you need to surrender to Him. We all come with the empty hands of faith receiving God's grace to us, and so uh, I just want to give you a space to do some business with the Lord this morning. And then um, after that time of silence, the band is going to lead us in a couple songs uh, to celebrate the goodness of the gospel. Uh, and then uh, I've got a couple last announcements and a benediction for you. So um, there are communion elements in your, in your seat area, but uh, I'm not going to administer communion as a whole this morning. Uh, we're going to wait on that uh, at least one more week. So if you want to participate in communion on your own, you're welcome to do so. But otherwise, uh, I'm not going to lead us through that. Let me pray, and then I'll give you a moment of silence, and then we'll sing. Father, uh, I thank you for uh, your grace and mercy to us through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I thank you for these beautiful people and their willingness to give up uh, some time on a Sunday um, and to worship with their brothers and sisters and to rehearse the gospel and hear the gospel and sing the gospel. And Lord, I pray that there's something of what was said today that would be helpful and encouraging to uh, the, the men and women in this room. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask you right now to uh, reveal that, to, to apply that, uh, whatever area was, was helpful. And uh, Lord, that we would just be able to be still before you and let you 
speak into our hearts right now and bring encouragement. Do what only you can do, uh, Holy Spirit. So uh, we want to just be still and listen, and I pray that you would meet us here, and as we sing and as we respond, would you be glorified and honored. We ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.